Welcome back to the Flow State Performance Podcast. My name is Jira Taylor, and I'm the founder of the Flow State Collective, which is an organization helping leaders and companies exist in states of flow. So we nourish an ecosystem of organizations that I guess are our clients, and we help them optimize for the emergence of human expression, purpose, and potential. This week on the Flow State Performance Podcast, we have got uh, part two in the mini-series, which is designed to help you start or deepen, expand your meditation practice. This week, we're diving into the stress response and a a little bit more into the science of meditation. If you're looking for a way to uh, expand your performance to become a high-performing entrepreneur or founder, if you want your company to exist in states of flow, just email me, jiro at flowstate.co. Otherwise, enjoy this show. All right, so we're going to learn about the meditation as a practice uh, to slip into deeper states of flow. And really, we're going to dive into the stress response. We're going to learn a little bit more about the, the science of stress. But first of all, I wanted to start with a beautiful quote by a man called Bob Sharples. It says, don't meditate to fix yourself, to heal yourself, to improve yourself, to redeem yourself. Rather, do it as an act of love, of deep, warm friendship to yourself. In this way, there's no longer any need for the subtle aggression of self-improvement, for the endless guilt of not doing enough. It offers the possibility of an end to the ceaseless round of trying so hard that wraps so many people's lives in a knot. Instead, there is now meditation as an act of love. How endlessly delightful and encouraging. End quote. I love that one. This is really an important part of my meditation practice as it's gone through the peaks and troughs over the last 17, 18 years. I've many times been caught in the the pushing, the self-improvement, the subtle aggression of self-improvement, as he says. And I think the most enduring uh, quality of my practice has, uh, over the last five years has been to really perceive it as an act of, of love and connection with the deepest parts of myself. When I sit down on my meditation cushion in front of my little sacred stuff, it's, it really feels now like coming home. It feels like a treat. It feels like nourishment to myself it feels like the feeling that you get when you book yourself in for a massage or for whatever it is but on a deeper level you're really uh, honoring yourself so this week we're going to explore the basic modes of your biology that determine whether you're in a state of relaxation or in a state of stress so this is this is commonly called the sympathetic and the parasympathetic nervous systems so the sympathetic nervous system is uh, also known as the rest and recover mode um, I like to look at it as, as the green mode, just to give it a little color code. And the parasympathetic nervous system, this is commonly known as the fight or flight mode. And in my color-coded system, this is the red mode. So we've got the green or the red, and we're either dominantly in red or we're dominantly in green. That is just the way it is. So the red mode is our basic survival tool. Um, and just to backtrack a little bit, we're basically talking about our autonomic nervous system. So we're talking about... Um, kind of like the most fundamental um, aspects of our biology. This is almost like this is controlled by a part of our brain, which we'll go more into uh, in a little bit, which is ancient. Um, And 
This is uh, on top of that is our sort of more higher functioning aspects of our of our intelligence. But this is like primal deep stuff. We're either pretty much um, chilling or fighting dominantly. So the red mode is like a survival mechanism. So if you can imagine our ancestors uh, being chased by a tiger or perhaps someone from the tribe in the next valley, this uh, this sympathetic nervous system, this red mode, fight or flight, would kick in to provide us the energy and the focus to either fight or run away. So when the red mode is activated, a whole bunch of neurological and physical changes kick in. It all starts um, in the brain. So we've got this part of the brain um, which is kind of like at the the bottom. If you just imagine that the, the brain and, and you imagine like the kind of like the innermost uh, chamber, it's really at the center, but at the bottom, it's where the the brain stem um, connects in with the with, with the main part of the brain, um, the limbic brain. So in the brain, this uh, the hypothalamus sends a signal to the pituitary gland. And this releases biochemicals into the bloodstream, which travels to our adrenal glands. And the adrenal glands release stress hormones into the blood, including adrenaline and cortisol. And this speeds up our heart and our respiration rates and makes, it, and makes us optimized to fight or run away. So in the body, blood uh, is diverted away from our digestive organs into our muscles because we just don't need to digest our food when the most important thing is to run for our lives. And this is why we lose our appetite when we're stressed or nervous. So our metabolic rate is raised by these stress hormones. It raises our blood sugar levels. It raises our heart rate and it mobilizes energy to deal with the threat or the challenge. And when we're really, really, really stressed, our, we basically shit or piss ourselves. Our bowels and bladder loosen so we can be lighter, uh, so we can run faster. So that's actually the biological rationale for shit in your pants. It's that your body is prepping you to run away in a quicker way. Also, your blood thickens to protect us if you're cut. Our breathing goes more shallow. Our muscles tense up and we're just flooded with, these, uh, with cortisol and adrenaline. The way this shows up in our minds is that our thinking becomes narrow. We go into protective mode, so we're hypervigilant, hyper-aroused. If you can imagine just looking around furtively, just scanning your environment in that state of fear, that's what it is. We become defensive, we're reactive, we're quick to judge. We cannot access creative solutions, we cannot access the totality of our intellect, and we cannot analyze the situation clearly. This is a red mist of fear and self-preservation. Again, we're either... We are being optimized to either run or fight. So the thing is, we live in a different world to the one that we've evolved in. And in the modern world, there's not too many saber-toothed tigers to run away from. But the stress response is exactly the same um, to a perceived threat to it is to a real threat. So our, the stresses in modern life are usually caused by perception, a way of viewing life like the way we perceive our mother-in-law or the way we perceive a bill, uh, an invoice, uh, the way we perceive our neighbors, the way we perceive our boss. It's not actually often real uh, external threats to our life. So where our ancestors might have encountered a stressful situation, maybe like once or twice a week, uh, maybe we're faced with a stressful situation uh, daily in our jobs, in our relationships, or in commuting to work each day. 
It's the same response that gets kicked in. Even reading the newspaper can induce a stress response. Like watching like missiles being fired on the news or stories of like gun massacres can invoke the stress response. Listening to a friend complain, hearing an angry neighbor, eating spicy food, watching like a violent movie, watching Game of Thrones can all trigger our, our red mode. And so can thinking about emotional wounds or wallowing in self-doubt or living in a way that's not authentic or aligned to our values. Being dishonest to ourselves or others also causes a stress response. So in our society, the, this stress response, this red mode has become like an addiction. It's almost like a default mode of operating. It's a way of life for so many people. And stimulus, control, struggle, busyness, drama is kind of indulged rather than avoided to the extent that for some people, stress has become like a a source of energy. It's like a, a source of motivation. It's become like a source of identity for some people. And on top of this, we have real stress, <laughs> like the real stressors of life, like sickness, injury, death, disaster. So we have, once you, when you add it all together, we are often, if you look around in the world, what you'll often perceive in the Western world is people operating in like a constant state of uh, sympathetic activation of red mode activation we are an overstressed society but i just want to stress no pun intended that stress itself is not the problem it's chronic stress it's living in stress that's the problem like stress is normal it's super useful it's a uh, it's feedback from our environment our nervous system is telling us that we need to change something but this awesome response designed to survive designed designed to help us to survive it's designed for short-term use once the danger is passed or once we've taken appropriate action we're designed to switch it off and allow the relaxation mode the green mode to kick in and to restore equilibrium the problem is that when we stay in the stress response out of habit or a lack of awareness we get sick we get diseases we get tired we get cranky we become unhappy we suffer chronic stress without sufficient rest will gradually break us down in our mind our emotions and our body we'll suffer with chronically high levels of cortisol and whilst a temporary spike in cortisol can actually sharpen our mental focus which is obvious because this is optimizing us for uh, short-term running away or fighting um, a continually elevated level of cortisol will lead to mental degradation, decreased memory, and a dysfunctional immune system. So it's actually like terrible for us. When we look around in the world and we look at the sickness and the disease out there, I wonder how much of it is mind-made. I wonder how much of it is a function of this chronic stress, this addiction to busyness and drama that is a part of this culture that we're living in. It's like living in a state of emergency at all times. It is terrible for us. But fortunately, there's something that we can do about it, and we'll get into that soon. So the opposite is the green mode. So just some, I'll give some information about what happens in this state of resting and recovering, the parasympathetic state. So this is our, this is our time for nurturing ourselves. So as humans, our natural instinctive needs are protection and growth. And um, the stress response, the red, is to protect us. The relaxation response, the green, this is to help us grow 
We need to recover and grow and nourish ourselves. And our health depends on us to be able to use the stress response when it's needed and turn it off when it's not. So when we're in the relaxation mode, we put down our defenses, we slow down, we chill out, we open up, we heal ourselves, we feel enthusiasm, we experience flow, we feel vitality, we digest not only our food, but we digest our experience. We're open, we're aware, we're present, we learn our lessons, we access our memories, we put in place strategies for the future. In our bodies, the changes are profound. We have a decrease in muscular tension. We have uh, serotonin and melatonin released, which increase our sense of well-being and they restore our rhythms. Our heart rate and blood pressure go down. Our breathing becomes deeper. Our immune system goes back on. Tissue cell repair and self-healing is restored, and as is digestion. So when we regularly access this mode, of course, we have amazing physical and mental benefits. So what does this actually have to do with meditation? Well, meditation is a powerful way to restore balance and equilibrium. So when I think about meditation, I think about how humans have evolved over the years. I'm pretty sure that meditation was probably used as a survival and happiness tool way before it was recognized as a route to a, to a more enlightened state. I think it would have been entirely practical to start with. When people became stressed out, they probably, uh, an, a wise person would have told them to just go sit quietly in the corner and focus on your breathing. And, um, and then this person would experience this equilibrium and they would come back to the social group refreshed and reset and able to connect with people and act with compassion and patience again, instead of just being angry. So until recently, uh, on a scientific level, little was known about how powerful a few hours of meditation or reflection each week could, could lead to such an intriguing and complex range of mental and physical benefits. But now, especially as the popularity of mindfulness increases and the science around uh, brain imaging increases, we're able to see so much about how meditation can profoundly change the way different regions of our brain communicate with each other and therefore how we think. So MRI scans show that after eight weeks of mindfulness practice, this is a famous study done by Harvard scientist uh, Sarah Lazar, Sarah Lazar, um, specifically uh, a practice, a, a research study, double blind, everything like that, peer reviewed, <laughs> all the stamps of approval that a modern rational mind could possibly want. Uh, eight weeks of mindfulness practice, the brain's fight or flight center, the amygdala shrinks. This is the part of the brain associated with fear and emotion. It's involved in the initiation of the body's response to stress. So as the amygdala shrinks, the prefrontal cortex, which is the, the highest functioning parts of our brain, it's to do with awareness, concentration, decision-making, um, this becomes thicker. So we've got the amygdala shrinking, we've got the prefrontal cortex thickening. This creates what we call functional connectivity between these regions. So i.e. this is how they're activated together. So the connection between the amygdala and the rest of the brain gets weaker because it shrinks, but the connections between the areas associated with attention and concentration get stronger. And the scale of these changes correlate with the number of hours of meditation practice a person has done. In other words, the more meditation you do, the more you can change your brain so that you can respond more thoughtfully with more wisdom to stimulus and threats. I think that's pretty profound. The more meditation we do, the more we can physically change the shape and size and functional connectivity of our brain 
so that we respond with more wisdom and insight to perceived stimulus and threats. So I'm going to talk a little bit now about uh, neuroplasticity and a related concept that was taught to me by someone I studied with, Dr. Rick Hansen. Um, he talks about the negativity bias. A really important concept to get your head around if you want to, uh, I guess, understand your potential. So neuroplasticity is the concept of taking an active role in cultivating uh, states of mind and patterns of thought that are beneficial. And uh, Dr. Rick Hansen used this metaphor of looking at our minds like a garden. So we can either sit back and watch the garden overgrow and get overrun with reeds, with weeds, sorry, or we can take an active role as the gardener. We can observe it, we can pull weeds, we can plant flowers, we can tend to the garden. The flowers of the mind grow by turning fleeting experiences into lasting resources inside our brain, such as strength, emotional balance, calm, happiness, confidence, compassion, and love. And we can train our brains so that we are positively affected by both negative and positive experiences, and therefore create a life of more satisfaction and happiness. This is awesome stuff. We can use mindfulness and flow experience as a tool to train our brains and boost our evolution, our, boost the pace of our evolution in a way, so that we're coming out of these prehistoric habits, we're coming out of this prehistoric negativity bias. So basically, over time, we've been, um, if you think about our ancestry, if you think about how many ancestors we have, if you think about grand, our grandfather's father's father's father, father, or our grandmother's mother, 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 going back all the way back, all the way back, like we're talking like, I don't know how many, thousands, thousands, thousands of generations. If you think about over time, um, the sort of human being that would have perished before Statistically speaking, it would be the ones who were less pessimistic who would have died sooner, like over, over, over a large scale. So if you've got a thousand humans, right, and um, if you divided them between ones who are more optimistic and more pessimistic, you're going to have a higher survival rate on the more pessimistic ones because they're the ones who, are, who think that danger is around every corner. They're the ones who are constantly looking out for the things that could hurt them, whereas the optimistic ones, more happy-go-lucky, over time, over a large number, there's much more likelihood that they're going to uh, not perceive a, a threat to life as a threat. Which means that over time, our brains have developed what scientists call the negativity bias. And it basically means our brain is like a, what Rick Hansen called it, our brain is like a Velcro for the bad and a Teflon for the good. What he means by that is our brain, um, it, the bad experiences that we have or the perceived bad experiences, like an example is like we have a review with our boss at work. It's a quarterly review. He calls us in. We spend an hour there. And he goes through our performance, he goes through our, whatever it is, our statistics, our KPIs, and whatever it is. And he says, hey, Jiro, um, on the whole, we're really, we're really, really happy with how you're showing up and how you're performing at work. And you've been performing your, your, your job with, with great skill, and we can see your dedication and your commitment. Uh, we really like the way that, that you're performing. You're an awesome team member, and you're really contributing to this, to this company. But there's this one thing. Um, if you could just uh, stop uh, rocking up five minutes late um, and if you could just stop doing that thing where you talk over people all the time, that would be great. Um, so my brain is going to kind of like, it's going to like the good, all the, all the stuff that I said at the beginning is just going to slide away, which, whereas the stuff that he said at the end, 
the negative stuff is just going to stick in my consciousness. Okay, can, you, can you relate to that? Scientists have studied this negativity bias and have found that uh, we're almost five times more likely to um, avoid pain than we are to seek pleasure. Or we're five times more likely to um, like avoid losing 20 bucks than try and make 20 bucks. So that those are just some ways in which this negativity bias manifests. So it's kind of like this natural pessimism, which I don't know about you, but I don't want to live with because I don't live in a world where um, there's like threats around every corner. I want to have a more balanced um, level in my, in my mind. I don't want to have any bias in there whatsoever. Um, I want to train my brain to be more adapted to the current reality that I live in rather than just allowing my brain to manifest as a product of evolution that has, that has evolved during a time of much more hazard and, and danger. So we can actually use mindfulness as a tool. So we can tilt towards the positive through practice. And um, this is a whole other area. Maybe I'll make another podcast about the sort of practice that we're talking about. But in a nutshell, we're talking about marinating in awesomeness. This is something I talk about with my clients. So when we have, a, when we have an experience, when we have a negative experience, we train ourselves to immediately draw the benefits, the positivities out of it. So I missed my flight. Okay, what does, this, what does this open up in my reality? What can I learn from this? What can I use in this space? What new opportunities are going to emerge from me missing my flight? Or I have a positive experience. I win an award. Okay, I soak this into my consciousness. How can I actually draw most meaning from this? I give myself a pat on the back. I run myself through the history, all the actions that I've taken, which have led to me winning this award. This is allowing me to soak, to marinate my consciousness in the awesomeness and the good. And this is helping you tilt from negativity to a more of a level playing field. Um, so by practicing things like this, which is, and also practicing just straight up mindfulness, you're creating new neural pathways, allowing you to live more in the green zone. And in doing so, you're able to increase your emotional intelligence because you're able to spend less time running away and you're able to spend more time in this state of healing and growth and empathy and compassion and care. That's awesome. So I hope you understand a little bit more about how meditation is just it's just basics. We've got to be doing it. If you're not doing it, then you're just, you're, you're not harnessing a, you're not leveraging a powerful skill set that will help you come out of stress and live in the only mode of existence that leads to your growth. If you're existing in stress the, the, all of your life, then you are not growing. Trust me on that one. You are not growing and you are going to probably face some sort of chronic disease prematurely if you're living in a constant state of stress. When you train yourself to experience relaxation and flow and live in this green mode, living in flow, when you constantly, when you carve out time to meditate and to be and to wander through forests with no agenda and no digital devices, when you just allow yourself to nourish yourself and create peace and space in your life, then you are allowing yourself to grow, to heal, to become a more developed human being. So... I'm going to talk a little bit before we just close off about posture when you're meditating. Um, for a lot of people, when I teach meditation, um, I notice a lot of people actually um, unable to maintain the posture that is required. And this is because we live in a culture where we learn how to, we've got children sitting in chairs for six hours a day at school. Like who the hell decided that that was a good idea? We got, we got adults sitting in chairs all day long in offices and obviously, it's affecting our core muscles and our posture and our spine. And this is why we've got so much 
injury in those areas in our culture. So the basic tenet is to sit like a mountain and flow like a river. So there's a definite connection between the position you meditate in and your state of mind. So if you're too rigid, then your mind is going to be too rigid. If you're too slumped over and collapsed, then your mind is just going to be too slumped over and collapsed. So you've got to find that middle ground, sit like a mountain, flow like a river. So basically be strong, but yet flowing. Okay. Uh, Think of it like tuning a guitar. When you get that you can either, you're either going to like tune it so much that you snap it or it's just too tight or it's going to be so loose and twangy. So you want to get that sweet spot. And that's the way to think about your, your posture when you're meditating. So really it's about an elevated posture. I like to imagine someone, a piece of string on the crown of my head and someone just, just like gently tugging me upwards, like a friendly uh, alien, just gently tugging me upwards. And it just allows me to elevate my, my posture a little bit. And that allows me to breathe into my feels like my lower body, but I'm basically breathing into the totality of my lungs. I'm breathing from the diaphragm rather than breathing from the chest. This is a very important part of meditation. If you're breathing from the chest, then really you're, 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 everything about that breathing pattern is telling your body to stay in the red mode. If, you're, if you start breathing uh, from, your, from your diaphragm, and the way to do this is to put one hand over your belly button, And if you're breathing in through your diaphragm, then your, then your hand over your belly button is going to gently rise and fall. And actually practice that. Practice like breathing one hand on your belly button, one hand over your heart, and practice breathing in a way where your heart hand just stays stationary. This is a really good practice. This is telling your body to switch into the uh, parasympathetic state, the, the relaxation mode, the green mode. So another aspect about posture is like when you're upright, when you're open, you're actually reflecting that the, like the psychosomatics of this is that you're, you're in a position of strength, courage, balance, equanimity. You're also um, aligning and integrating like your pelvis, torso, head, allowing that smooth diaphragmic breathing. So it's just a very conducive posture for meditation. So you can either sit in a chair or cross-legged or on the floor. It doesn't really matter. I sit on the floor. I, I sit on a meditation stool to raise my, uh, my sit bone a little bit. Um, this allows me to be more comfortable for longer meditation sits. I sometimes sit on the chair as well, sit on the edge of the bed. Lying down can be can be great if you have pain sitting down. Um, if you're doing a sort of like a relaxation meditation, then lying down can be great. But of, of the obvious risk is falling asleep. Um, so we're looking, we're going for an upright spine. We're going for a, a chin parallel to the floor. Uh, we're going for a lengthening in the back of the neck. We're going for an open chest. So either place your hands palm down, flatten your knees, or put them in some sort of mudra, some sort of position that, that, that you like. I like to put my, uh, sort of like, uh, lay my fingers, one, one palm, uh, palms upright face, facing me, and like one palm behind the other palm with my thumbs touching each other. That's a, that's a nice position. Relax the face. Just like notice how much tension you have in your face and make an intention just to drop it. You'll notice like these really subtle muscles in your face just begin to drop away. You can even massage them a little bit. Stick your tongue out. That will help you like relax your face as well. Notice if there's any tension around your temples and your eyes, your eyebrows. Just allow everything to just to soften. Okay. So by practicing this meditation, you're going to be much more likely to have a, to have a, a deep meditation. You're going to, it's much more likely that if you have a good posture, 
Uh, just like if you have a have a good golf swing, there's much more chances if you've got good technique that you're going to hit that ball straight. And if you have good technique with your meditation posture, there's much more likeliness that your awareness is going to be straight like an arrow, that you're going to be able to drop into a deep state. Just be aware whilst you're meditating if your posture has become too rigid or more likely has started to collapse. And when that happens, just gently, mindfully correct your posture. Remember, sit like a mountain, meaning that the, the body is strong, but flow like a river. Remember, there's a lightness to it, okay? So I hope you enjoyed that little series. If you want to actually uh, dive into some meditation practices, you can go to my personal website, jirotaylor.com forward slash guided dash meditations. Um, go to track three. There's a meditation practice that I recorded there. Um, also, a little exercise that I share with you is mindfulness of walking. When I'm walking around, I love just like dropping into this state of awareness uh, where I'm completely aware of what's going on around me. I'm listening to the birds. I'm looking at the colors in the trees. I'm feeling the crunch of the leaves under my foot. Um, if you want to do some counting, try and sync up your breath with, with your, with your uh, walking pace. And uh, let me know if you've got any questions at all about meditation. I love helping people deepen this beautiful practice. Jiro at flowstate.co. Thanks for listening. Well, I hope you got something out of that uh, part two of, of a series of six. Uh, in a, I guess I'm going to call it the art of meditation and living in flow. Uh, a little series to, uh, that I've built from a, when I used to teach meditation to people. Um, this is all just gold and, and I just thought it would be worth sharing with you. Um, I hope that you have engaged in a meditation practice. It really is like a basic building block of a life and flow. It's going to help you with every aspect of your life, your relationships, your performance as an athlete, as, a, as an entrepreneur, um, just in all areas of being a human being. This is going to help you express your full potential. So if you have any questions about meditation, please just reach out to me. Um, if you, as I said before, run a company or you're an entrepreneur, a founder, and you want some help developing greater confidence, greater self-awareness, then contact me. This is the work that I do, Jiro uh, at flowstate.co. If you're looking for a way to, a more sort of casual way to explore living in the flow of life, we run flow pods, go to flowtribe.co and you can explore what they're all about. Otherwise, just hit me up if there's a question you have or a guest that you think that um, you might have fun listening to if I interviewed them. Thank you so much for supporting the show. I really appreciate it. If you enjoy the show, to share it with your friends. Um, otherwise, send me a message. Let me know that you're listening. Sending big love, big flow. Bye-bye.